You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host Anirban. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany where we translate AI solutions to problems in image guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together, let's make healthcare AI ready. We are the mirror as well as the face in it. We are testing the taste of eternity this minute. We are pain and what cures pain. We are the sweet cold water and the jar that pours soul of the world, no life nor world remain. No beautiful women and men longing, only this ancient love circling the holy black stone of nothing. Where the lover is the loved, the horizon and everything within it. You were listening to We Are The Mirror by Rumi and now to the first season of the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. It's a wonderful day here in Darmstadt and welcome all of you to the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. This is the first season of the podcast. I am Anirvan and today we have a wonderful guest with us, Professor Bernard Dorweiler. I hope I pronounced the name correctly <laughs> from Cologne. So he is currently a professor of vascular surgery in University Hospital Cologne and he is also the director of the vascular surgery clinic uh, there. So far, Bernard's focus has been about advancement of digital surgery, and he also has a lot of vested interest in bringing 3D printing into the surgical process, uh, 3D printing for patient education, 3D printing for planning, and also mixing multiple materials into 3D printing. So we will hear more about it. Welcome, Bernard, to the podcast. Yeah. Hi, to you all, and of course, uh, Anyaban, I'm I'm glad and I'm I'm very happy that that we have the chance to chat here and to talk about AI. And uh, so thank you very much for your very kind introduction. And um, well, I remember when we first met, actually, when I came over then uh, to visit you in Darmstadt, and you came over to visit me when I was in still in Mainz uh, University. So and this was something that for me really was a some some key experience to to get in touch with a very capable and uh, absolutely awesome engineer and, and digital and scientist because um, I'm as you said I'm, I'm a surgeon and surgeons think different surgeons 
at some point behave different. And so it was a really exciting experience uh, for me to get to know you. And I'm very, very happy that, that this continues, that this work together. So, okay, coming back to your question, I trained as a, as a surgeon uh, and then as a general surgeon, and then I trained as a vascular surgeon. And uh, as a vascular surgeon, we treat complex diseases of anatomy. So basically vascular surgery is something that has to do with tubing. So tubing moving from A to B and tubing that transports the blood. But the diseases relevant to this tubing can be complex because the, the anatomy can be, is changing, is different. We have a lot of structures located very close to the, the vasculature. And so every surgeon, every vascular surgeon needs to have a very good depiction of the anatomy and the three-dimensional anatomy. And now we have to, to know that um, usually in textbooks and also on the screens that we watch in the operating room, anatomy is always two-dimensional. So this brought me to the field of, of 3D reconstruction and of 3D printing. And this proved very helpful to me, but also to my colleagues, to our residents, to our students. And which was very, very interesting for me to see and to the patients, because all of what we do, we have to explain to the patient, which you might, some, some example of that you may see in the back, then that he's able then to give his consent. So Anivan, I'm ready for your next question. <laughs> so I guess I, I will come to the technical part, but for a second, just to understand the training of yours. So when you said that you are trained as a surgeon, I'm guessing at different hospitals or were you all the way in mines? where you get trained as a sergeant? I spent um, about 80% of my time uh, in Mainz, but uh, I spent also some time abroad, spent some time in the United States, visited some hospitals. I've been to Houston, I've been to New York. I also visited hospitals in Germany to see some specialized technical um, issues. But like I said, on the other hand, most like 80% of the time I was in mines. Yeah. Wonderful. So this is very relevant for us because you see, we are mainly like my background is basically a computer science through and through. So a computer scientist doesn't understand really how the surgical training happens. And it's such a specialized discipline and the kind of let's say, skills that you need and the level of execution you have to, like you have to be consistent at that level. And that's something which we typically don't work, like care. I mean, let's say, even if you take the best of the best computer scientists who are, I guess, developing in Facebook or Twitter or wherever, like we release a version, something doesn't work out, we figure it out, okay, we release the next version. You guys don't have that possibility. So that's a very different aspect. So that was very interesting for us to know how you guys are actually trained into becoming so robust in your skill set that you can perform it again and again. It's like you said, it's a training. A surgeon is not born right away. So all, all of the surgeons are, are trained. Some during their lifetime somehow proved that, that, that they were actually born with this capability. 
but most of them, or actually all of, all of us, have to be trained. This is something that can be accomplished. So you can have a person, any person actually, has the potential to be trained as a surgeon. Now, there are some requirements, of course. You need to have some kind of coordination from, from, uh, from the eyes, from the brain, to the hand. That's, uh, that's for sure. Now, what I always tell the, the students when they ask me, can I become a surgeon? I always say, okay, do the following. Go uh, to the supermarket, buy a, a chicken, like a, a whole chicken, and uh, put that in the, in the oven, make a, a nicely seasoned cooked chicken, and then try to eat this with a knife and a fork. And if you are able to accomplish this, then you have the potential to be trained uh, as a surgeon. And now then what you also have to take into account my, my whole, my total time of, of training I spent was about eight years. So there is, and there used to be five years of training as a, as a general surgeon, and then another three years of training as a vascular surgeon. Um, in the meantime, there was a, a slight change in the residency program. So now we are down to six years, but six years still is a quite long time. You have to imagine all, all of them, all of the residents are graduated from the medical school. And then still after having, after going through four years of medical school, still they have to pass six years of surgical training. Okay, I hope I could make clear and explain that yes, it's possible to learn this, but on the other hand, yes, it takes time. And of course, it takes effort, it takes dedication. Yeah, that's quite wonderful. And now the other question or the, the, the other point that you were making slightly before that when, let's say, the most of the internal images are taken from which you plan your surgery or you do the diagnosis, you think that, okay, this patient needs surgery, are typically radiology images, MR, CT, you name it. So these are all... Well, these are 3D images, but you don't get those 3D representation. You see slice by slices. And then from there in your head, you have to come up with a sort of geometry of this particular patient. And you have to think how it is different from all the previous patients that you have operated and stuff like that. And that basically made you curious about really making these 3D printing so that you actually can bridge that gap. Like that's the first thing I guess you are talking about. So maybe you can describe a little bit about how things were before when you, you did your residency and how it has changed since you started doing this program. When I started my training, we used, if, if we talk about a computing tomography scan, and then we used to get a number of X-ray plates, images, um, about the size of a, of a stamp that you put on a, on a letter. So about, you know, some hundred of these small images. And you used to put that on a, on, a light, on a light screen. And then you go through those images and, you know, struggle and try to understand what's shown there. So that really was tedious. Because vascular surgeons in the old days usually were trained using angiography images, not like actual images from CT scanning. And then there was an, an, an invention or a leap forward using the reconstruction software for the 2D images. 
And uh, with that 3D reconstruction, it was able to, to kind of stack all those single images and then move forward to get a 3D impression. In the first days, it was just multi-planar reconstruction. And then came three-dimensional three rendering. And with that, we ended up indeed with the chance to, on a computer screen, to generate a three-dimensional model of the anatomy, to move it, to turn it, bony structures, or with other, with kidney or with intestine whatsoever. And, and this was really a great move forward. Nowadays, actually, it's still, it's, it's, it's still further improving because um, the software tools that can be used are more user-friendly. It's easier, it's faster to, to obtain those 3D, uh, 3D reconstructions. And of course, like I said, we as a surgeon, we, we, we think with our hands somehow. So we are people that like to touch something. And then so for us, the chance to use this data set to run it through a 3D printer and finally to end up with a model that we can hold in the hand and touch is actually, it's, it's a great, another great step forward, yeah. That's quite wonderful. So I guess one question there is that palpation that you talked about that you, you like to think by touching things. That's something that I guess the 3D printed and I guess the advancement of 3D printed materials means you are getting more and more like back in those old days when you used to do the open surgery and you could touch things. So I guess one question is basically when you are doing the actual surgery, be it a catheter guided or whichever way you are planning to do, you don't have that feel anymore, right? Because you don't get any haptic feedback in your catheters. Um, we do get some, some haptic feedback, um, but it's different. It's, it's completely different than the feedback that we get during an open, open surgical case. Yeah. That's quite wonderful. So I guess this brings us to sort of the first question towards artificial intelligence and 3D printing, because there, I mean, the most obvious thing is also we figured out like many other groups that you have to segment these structures from CT and that takes forever. So if we can figure out some artificial intelligence neural networks to actually do it automatically or sort of give you a first impression of how it looks like that significantly passes the entire process. So what are your thoughts about uh, that perspective of artificial intelligence that can bring into the 3D printing of surgical stuff? Well, I think that's a great opportunity to, to implement, to use artificial intelligence or machine learning or this technology, because the images that we look at, um, they are just actually grayscale pictures. If we want to extract the structure that is of interest for us, we have to tell uh, the software actually where to set the threshold between different grayscales. But this is easy at some point if you're looking at bony structures, which have a high gradient. Now, for structures that are with a less, with lesser gradients, um, like, like vascular structures or like intestine, 
gets more and more dif difficult to really set the threshold to recognize and to segment the structures. And this, this is, I think, something where, where pattern recognition comes in. Because we, as, as a surgeon, when we look at the pictures, okay, we know what grayscale belongs to the aorta, and we know what grayscale belongs to the kidney, because we know how the different organs look like. But the gray value, the, the grayscale value, is actually the same. And this is something where the, the simple segmentation software um, will fail. And uh, now, as I said, in the, in the old days, there was no automated or semi-automated segmentation. It was done slice by slice, all by hand. And uh, now, and this is where I really see the, the role of AI, is that it's because it's, it's, it's pattern recognition. This can be achieved or can be supplemented by AI algorithms. And this is, in fact, something that is already working. We have semi-automated segmentation processes. And again, it's a great, it's a great leap forward and it makes things easier and faster. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, uh, this is something that in Mikai community we have been doing for, I guess, last two decades, three decades or so. But I guess we are a little bit slow like everything else in, in the medical healthcare technology that from research to translation, it takes time. So I'm happy that things are actually started translating and probably soon enough, soonish enough, we will have more of these automated pipelines to make things much faster. So I guess you said talking to the patients become easier. So can you give us some sort of, uh, from your experience, some experience of talking to patients where you felt like, wow, without this, I would have never been able to explain the situation. Yeah. Yeah, there is there is one case that pops pops right up my my brain. Um, that was a, a lady in the 50s that came to us. She had a huge aneurysm, a huge malformation of her vasculature, which was almost located on the upper upper part of the thorax or of the chest, uh, extending more cranially, and and so. We obtained a CT scan from her, and, and to be honest, we were not able to get any clue, any idea from just looking at the CT images. And then I said, okay, let's do the following. Well, let's, let's do the segmentation, and let's get a print. This is a, a print of this lady's vasculature anatomy. And so you see here, this all is not kind of normal. And you see what the problem here is over here. This is the aortic arch. And this aortic arch is disrupted over here. So that's a kind of inborn error. It's a congenital anomaly. And the nature or the, the individual has kind of healed itself by generating collaterals. So all what you see here are collaterals that developed over time to carry the blood from the heart to the lower part of the body. And over time, they enlarged. So those collaterals become greater and greater. So with that model, we were able to dissect and to figure out 
how we can find and occlude the inflow into those enlarged vessels and how we can occlude the outflow. So how we can close the door, the back door and the front door. And then the only thing that we had to do is to find a way to carry the blood from the heart to the lower part of the body. This is simple by doing a bypass from here to here. So that's what we did. And then we occluded the back door and the front door. That was another two stages of the operation. So we had altogether three stages of the operation. And in the end, this aneurysm was occluded, no more harm for the patient. Now, what I was going to tell is that without such a, a model, and we, we took that model even into the operating room to really make sure that we are on the right position when we occlude back and front door. And so this is where I found it ultimately helpful to use something like this. And you can imagine if you go through such an anatomy, slice by slice, using actual, actual images, there's <laughs> no way, no way to, to understand anatomy. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful use of technology in real application of uh, clinical relevance where it really matters the most. That's really wonderful. I mean, this is really great to see that one particular patient benefited from the entire program. And I'm sure you have many such stories for patients who benefited. Yeah, and this is, this is also, I guess, interesting because you mentioned that you brought it to the surgery. So it's not just you see it once and you can remember such things. Even after printing and handholding it, you still prefer to bring it to the surgery than keep it in your office. So I can imagine those who are still doing it from the city and their mental model, they have to go a long, long way to actually spot this particular of complex problem. So what do you think about that particular transition? Because I guess you are at the front end of technological development. Many people are not. Yeah. So the good thing actually is that the basic information of, of any 3D print is the electronic model. So we call that an STL file, but that's, it's just, or it's an electronic twin. And if this model has been generated by a segmentation, for instance, then we can use it. We can send it to the 3D printer and get a model, but we can also use it in the operating room to overlay it on our actual image that we see on our 2D screen. So this is called image fusion. And this is again, proved to be very helpful for complex vascular interventions that we have this interoperative fusion where we overlay the anatomical data from the preoperative CT scan, we adjust it, to the actual position of the patient, of course. So this means the, the images are fused, but then we can orient on the 3D information, which is within this electronic file. And also you can think it again one step further. We could use some of those virtual intelligence or virtual reality glasses, for instance, or augmented reality glasses, 
and then wear them in the operating room and then send the picture or send the, the 3D image, like something like HoloLens, for instance. There are other, other devices on the market. We can send it to them and then generate an augmented reality within the operating room. So in, it's all the same, it's all the same file. Once the file has been generated, once, once the SDL file is available, there is a, a number of, of things that can be done. That's quite wonderful. I guess the question though is that probably like the 3D printing technology, even though it's becoming cheaper, if you are not in, in a uh, developed country, then such technology is still somewhere far for the surgeons to actually use. Mm -hmm. So sure you have a perspective of how the developing world coming into terms with such technology into the surgical system, the operating rooms, or are they still quite a bit lacking in this sort of technological innovation? Well, it's expanding, it's moving forward. And of course, one has to make, make a decision if you want to have the, the 3D printing facility as an in-house facility. So if you want to do it actually by yourself, or there are a lot of companies in the meantime available that will be able or that, that offer that they can do the print job for you. From my point of view, I decided that I want to have it all you know, in my hands and under my control. So we built up a 3D printing lab and uh, we are now building up a 3D printing lab over here in, in Cologne because I also want to have uh, like the, the scientific part of it to be able to, to develop things, to, to change things. But for somebody who just wants to take advantage of the technology, um, he can send his pictures, even the, the, the plain CT scan that the patient brings in on a, on a CD, um, he can send that to a company and uh, he will get back a 3D printed model at some cost. It used to be quite expensive, but you know, the cost is, is going down. So both options actually are, are available. And, and, and my perspective, I, I think that the cost will further decrease. And so it will be able to, to get, let's say, simple 3D printed models, uh, let's say three digit uh, euro or dollar uh, scale. That's wonderful. So I guess that means it's becoming more accessible to even the developing world. So I guess another point that you mentioned about these 3D printed models are that they are very useful for training young surgeons. So these are also, I guess, if you are doing a, a minimally invasive operation under fluoroscopy or under CT guidance, then these are true to that, true under those modalities as well. So they can practice things on these sort of systems. From that perspective, how do you think the curriculum itself will change as such 3D printed models come into the training part of surgeons? Well, it will change significantly because there are training phantoms available, but usually they are very expensive if you want to buy such a training phantom and keep it in your own institution. So with this 3D printing technology, there is the, the chance or the option to develop such phantoms at a lower cost. Regarding the training, there's 
two things to mention, like you already did, especially for those operations that are done under fluoroscopy, there is radiation exposure. And uh, so we can not train our residents in the real operative setting, of course. And not everybody has the funds to buy one of those kind of elaborate or um, complex training phantoms. And so what I did is I just made a plane, just a, a plane aorta, one-to-one size made from a transparent polymer. And I mounted that on a glass plate or on a polyester plate. With that, it was able to really learn the basic wire and catheter movements just by watching with your eye because it's the, the, the polymer is translucent. And this is something that by, by our students over here and by our residents, they, they love those models because they can take all their time they need and they can do different interventions. One of the advantages is they can use the actual material and the actual devices and catheters that we use in the operating room. Now, many of the current training uh, simulators that are available, they use specific wires and specific materials that are not the same as in the operating room. So that's another advantage. The residency programs, they actually, they now have to have a certain amount of training time in implemented using those simulators. So this is something that becomes more and more translated into the real world of residency training. Oh, that's wonderful. This is also something where artificial intelligence is seeing a lot of application is basically sort of automatic or semi-automatic evaluation of the surgical skills as the training program is happening because Frankly, the hospital would like to keep the senior surgeon in or around operating room and not to train new people. <laughs> so, and the old model of C1, do one, teach one is also not the best model out there. So that, that way where you can generate a lot of such training videos or training data. And from there, you can, if you can evaluate ones which are good, which are mediocre, which are bad, and why these are bad, then artificial intelligence can learn and sort of do a semi-supervision along with, of course, the surgeon, and that can save a lot of surgeons' time. So how do you see such a possibility? Does it even make sense, or is it too much depending on artificial intelligence? No, you're absolutely right. That, that makes sense, because at the end, the training effect needs to be kind of documented or evaluated. I mean, you can have somebody spending, you know, hours and hours with such a model, but not learning to do the right thing, possibly. So you're right. There has to be a way to monitor and also to evaluate in the end. And of course, if we, we say we are using a tracking device and uh, we are able to track the movements of the wire and of, or of the catheter online, which the resident is doing then with some AI in the background that tells us like, okay, now wrong direction or too fast, too slow. That would be perfect, of course. That's quite wonderful. I guess the very interesting part of our discussion is quite often AI in healthcare almost equals to AI in radiology because radiology somehow is always the more technologically open and welcoming and AI did diagnostic radiology, like imaging diagnosis out or sort. That was a very interesting, let's say obvious application. But 
surgery is not that obvious. I mean, we have a very small community within our Mikai society, which we, the Kai part, computer-assisted intervention, where we develop all these artificial intelligence and stuffs uh, that can potentially be used on in the operating room. But what is really interesting for me to know about how the vascular surgery community thinks about artificial intelligence. Is it even within the radar or it's still some technology which could potentially be useful, but still a bit far away into the future? Yeah, I mean, actually it depends on where you look at. If you are looking at a small to medium-sized hospital, then they are not actively looking into AI. They, they probably, they use AI with some segmentation algorithm, but they are not aware of it. But on the other hand, if you look at a teaching hospital, universities, it's really on the screen. And uh, our, our society, Society of Vascular Surgery, has implemented a, a dedicated commission for AI and for digital science in the field of vascular surgery. So yes, th this is something where, like I said, in academic vascular surgery or vascular medicine really is, is looked at. We are evaluating like augmented realities, like the HoloLens, we are evaluating image fusion. Uh, we are thinking about using robotics, robotic assistance in the operating room comparable to that um, of the urologists, like the Da Vinci system. And of course, I mean, you know, I would love to see some AI doing the paperwork for me, you know? So, uh, <laughs> yes, we are, we are thinking about AI and the, the capabilities of AI, yeah. That's really wonderful. I mean, surgeon burnout due to filling up paperwork is a real headache. So that's something definitely where uh, reporting in that way can help. I mean, we actually do have some collaboration, but again, in the radiology sense where structured reporting is becoming more and more common because frankly, what radiologists write, the consumers, like not the patients, not other departments always even realize what there in their scribbled report. So there is this particular company, a smart reporting who are bringing in this template style uh, reporting for radiology to make things easier to understand from the reports. But I guess the more template also comes into surgery, probably life would be easier rather than you filling up all these reports and AI can definitely help there. So I guess the other question is, you have been practicing in the field for some time, both as a clinician, but also as a scientist. And you have seen the field changing and surgery initially was quite skeptical about bringing even robots into the operating rooms or bringing image guidance, technology in general. That has shifted to some extent, and as you mentioned already, Da Vinci. Da Vinci has changed that landscape quite significantly. So how do you see that transition from your particular uh, experiences? I, I think it's it has a very high potential. Now, well, talking about Da Vinci, you know, as you know, Da Vinci is a master slave system. So all movements are done by the operating surgeon. 
uh, I think the point where AI is in Da Vinci is how to eliminate the trembling of the fingers, for instance. So now for, for us as vascular surgeons, I think that the navigation, the navigation issue really is key or is, is crucial because to keep track of the devices that we move within the body, that we bring in, that we have to position, that we have to align, to get rid of radiation, to get rid of contrast application. So this is something where kind of automated movements, and there are already robots being able to move catheters, and they are not available on the, on the German market or the European market, but they are available in the United States. This is, I guess, the next step forward. So again, the vision um, is like a like an Da Vinci extended somehow. The vision is that we can stay at home and do the operation, you know, from our uh, relaxing chair in the in the backyard. This is one one view. The other view is that comparable to to remote 3D printing, you can offer with such technology in the back, you can offer highly specialized surgical treatment to remote hospitals. There are some obstacles in terms of bandwidth and in terms of computing capability, but I think from in principle, that would be possible. And, and this is actually where I think one of the great, another great potentials in using AI and robotics. I guess for that particular question that you just mentioned that there is always a master-slave system, but also, for example, the Vinci system needs, along with the robot itself, a very, very capable surgical assistant in sometimes multiple surgical assistants who can actually insert and take out all those surgical tools that Da Vinci is using. And this is also like, those are quite, I, I, I guess, not so like a bit brittle, they breaks and stuff. So if you don't handle those properly, and then sometimes you also have to use the laparoscope properly, otherwise you can't see things. So, so there are many, many aspects of, let's say, surgical assistant of the scrubbed uh, surgeon basically is doing even when the master is actually performing the surgery. So I guess when you really think of the robotic teleoperation, the ultimate dream that you can bring access to even advanced surgery to remote locations. So how do you see that this scrubbed surgeon's role will change over the years as you try to move to the remote teleoperations with robots involved? I think there's two things being linked to, to this question. One is the, the liability issue um, that somebody has to take responsibility of the treatment. And this is some discussion that is ongoing right at the moment. And this is basically the reason why when using Da Vinci, all the people are in the same room, which would not be necessary, obviously, but they are, they have to, because in case anything goes wrong to say, they are liable and they have to take full responsibility. Um, now, this is something that has to probably be solved in the future. Or, or at least has to be addressed in order to enable remote treatments. And on the other hand, if you look at the, at the robot itself, basically all the movements 
that an assistant is doing can be you know, taken over by another robot arm of the Da Vinci. So right at the moment, it's, it's just a, it's for safety, for safety reasons. There is the, the perspective to even more uh, take over those parts by AI-assisted robotic systems. All right. So yeah, that's that's something. I mean, liability is something that we don't often think are at the earlier stages of a technology development. But if it's healthcare tech, then we should be thinking about it as soon as we think of some plans. Otherwise, yeah, that there could be problems. Like, as you said, Da Vinci doesn't need to be the console and the robot in the same room, but they are for this liability issues. So I guess now that we are going towards the end of our uh, uh, one hour session, so I would probably bring something which is quite often kind of ignored, but it's very important is the interdisciplinary science or technology development happens when people talk and people from very different background talk. So this is this podcast is also one reason where like I bring both people from the Mikhai community, so necessarily engineers, computer scientists, but also uh, practicing uh, clinicians. And we basically chat to get these different perspectives. And so what are the ways we can bolster this? Because frankly, even somewhere in Germany where we have so much resources available for doing research, this is not very easy to do. So how do you see we can make this situation better? Well, I I think it's exactly the way that we did. For me, you know, it it was just, a miracle to visit your lab and to see what what you were able to do and i got the same response from you when you came over to to look what we were doing how we were doing that it gave a completely new view on the field to you and i think this is this is key i mean you need exchange yes you can do a lot by by talking about things but again uh, i think ultimately uh, you have to to be there, to do it, to touch it, to really get the full range of, of input and of impression. From that interdisciplinary conferences, I think are very valuable. We started that a couple of years ago in, in Mainz where we did an uh, interdisciplinary conference on 3D printing and being able to talk with a, a material scientist. It's a, you know, he, a material scientist lives in a completely different world. But, you know, our paths, our paths connect somehow and we, they need the information, what kind of material would be good for us. And we need the information, what kind of material they can do or they can generate at all. And so this is true for, for your field. I mean, if, if I know what problems you are able to solve in terms of image recognition, pattern recognition, um, then I can think about, okay, how could I use this piece of uh, work in my daily business or in my in my work? So yeah, the key is exchange. And again, personal uh, communication is another thing. I think this is very, very valuable because many things develop during conversation like we do right now, you know? This is something that, yeah, I also completely agree with you that we can't really underline how important it is to talk 
to people who are not from your silo, from your field and really get their perspective into it. So this is something where I felt that we also did a pretty okay job in terms of knowing each other's language. So language in the sense of how surgeons talk about the anatomies and their procedures versus how we talk about artificial intelligence and whatever methods we are developing. But do you have any sort of, I don't know, uh, back of the envelope rules of how you talk to people who are not from your background and try to understand what their perspectives? There's, a, there's one saying, I think it's from Albert Einstein. He said, if you are not able to explain it in simple words, you haven't understand it. And so this is what I'm actually trying to do is, and this is what, you know, we are facing with all the students. We have to explain things in, in quite simple words and we have to bring complex situations, you know, kind of translate them, make them somewhat easier and make them better to understand. And so discipline or your own background as simple as possible. You know, if, if you explain it in the, the most complex way that you can think of, kind of that, that sounds good, but nobody nobody will be able to, to understand. So this is one point I, I think that you really have to concentrate on, on you know, the, the, the important issues and then be able to transport them as easy to understand as you can. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about communication, it's also a very key aspect that you talked about that trying to like keep things simple, but of course not dumbing it down by moving important points uh, because you still need to solve the important problems that you, so, but this is also very interesting because typically we don't see in any of our studies any of our training nobody teaches this so when until and unless you start interdisciplinary collaboration and try to solve real problems from real world you don't learn it so there is i guess that's also something that we learn on our way yeah i guess at that we basically say it a day. So it was really, really wonderful talking to you, Bernard, again. I mean, we talk often, but for our listeners, this was a wonderful opportunity to hear from a surgeon who is interested in research of, of other people and who is doing a wonderful job in trying to bring things together. Thank you so much for the wonderful conversation, Bernard. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Anirban, for having me as your partner in this talk and uh, I, I enjoyed it and I hope there will be another session at some point. Thank you so much. So bye-bye Barnard and talk to you later. Bye-bye.